Welcome to Dead Folks Tales, a New Orleans-centric podcast exploring Southern Gothic stories, history, and hauntings with your host, paranormal and fantasy author, Nola Nash. Find out more at nolanash.com. Now, let's talk about dead people. And oh, are we going to talk about dead people today and parts of dead people and what they do with dead people. I am so excited about this one. We are talking about the Pharmacy Museum in New Orleans, and I have Miss Cameron Pig with me today, and she is going to kind of be our, our resident expert on the Pharmacy Museum and all things medically creepy <laughs> that happened in the pharmacy. And Cameron, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was the first pharmacy in the United States, right? Yes, it was the first licensed pharmacy. Licensed, um, yeah. And what that meant is that for um, New Orleans specifically, it was a very sickly city. Uh, we decided that maybe it wasn't, you know, the best uh, idea to let people just sort of sell medicine uh, without having like <laughs> a license or practice medicine without a license. Um, and so uh, Louis Dufio uh, did his... Um, he did a board and he was given a license to practice and then he set up the first licensed pharmacy which we still have today which is pretty awesome that it is still there you can still walk into it and i mean that's just it's amazing i love all of those things about new orleans that are just still there they're they're just there it's like it was there 300 years ago it's there today now cameron what is your job what do you do with the pharmacy museum um so i'm a docent um what that effectively means is a very fancy title for i'm a, I'm a question answerer um i if people uh, want to know more about our specific exhibits um, that's what I talk about. It's what I, it's what I love to share. I love sharing information about the museum. Um, so yeah, I answer questions all day. <laughs> love it. Let's see. I think I have a picture of the entrance. Yes, I do. So this is the pharmacy, pharmacy museum on Charter Street. And I love the old sign hanging out front. The other thing I love about the pharmacy museum is it's not a pricey place to go and visit. Like it's a great budget friendly bang for your buck thing to do when you go to New Orleans. For people who are looking for something that is quintessentially New Orleans, it's right there in the quarter. It is the first licensed pharmacy and it's not an expensive tour to take. You can just walk in, but if you want to do the tour, it's, it's actually a, a budget friendly thing to do, which is great. Oh, yeah. So amazing. what are some Ooh. of your favorite things about the pharmacy? What If you had to say, this is what you should see when you come. You know, people ask me that all the time and sort of, it's very difficult to answer because we have every section of the museum has something that I just really think everyone should like know about, see, touch. I mean, there's only certain things that you can sort of interact with, um, but most of it is just looking, but just sort of being in the moment is a huge bit of it. Um, for example, um, our soda fountain is amazing. We have a, uh, a very, very old soda fountain um, from 1855 um, that is in working order with the exception of, um, like, we, we don't use it because it has lead pipes. Um, and obviously that would be very bad. <laughs> um, but it is in working order. And one of the very cool things is we have a lot of weddings at the Farmers Museum. We have a lot of events. Mm -hmm. um, and oh, look, I have a picture of that. There's <laughs> the courtyard weddings. This is courtyard right here. It's, and um, you can... Get married in that courtyard. Then they're beautiful ceremonies too, by the way. I've seen so many pictures of weddings in the pharmacy courtyard. And it's gorgeous when you guys just get it all decorated. So cool. Yeah. Keep going about the fountain. The 
<laughs> Keep going about that. Yeah. So soda the fountain. soda fountain, um, sometimes when people have weddings, what they'll do is they'll use the soda fountain as like where you get your champagne um, before you go to your second line. Um, so we, it still kind of has that feel. Um, soda fountains are connected to pharmacies um, intrinsically. They were invented uh, for and by pharmacists uh, for the use of making medicines a little bit more palatable, a little bit more um, like something that you would be able to drink and not feel mm-hmm. like sick after. Um, <laughs> And but, but there's a lot of things that I really, really love. Um, I have a subspecialty in terms of what I'm interested in historically in sort of cosmetics and beauty. And we have a really lovely cosmetics and beauty uh, section that a lot of people miss because it's just in the sort of the center. It's not in a dedicated cabinet. It has like a center aisle cabinet. Um, and it has some examples of um, there's uh, radium powder, which is um face and body powder that it claims to be irradiated or have radium in it. Um, that's a little bit later and from like the 1920s, 1930s, as opposed to- What does to... radium do? Why would you want that in your powder? Um, <laughs> what were they thinking? Interesting. Um, radium, when it was discovered by Marie Curie, um, we had this idea innately within history that things that had an innate property pr- to produce light um, were in some way godly, some way powerful, something to that okay. effect. Um, and up until that point, we knew that you could get glowing chemicals from urine. Um, specifically, if you dilute it, if you boiled urine for a long enough period of time, you would produce phosphorus, which glows. Um, we didn't have anything else that like really did that. Um, so when radium discovered was discovered, there was this idea um, and you saw it a lot in things like Radithor water that was sold, um, mm-hmm. that radium would, it would make you glow from within, it would make you healthy, it would make you live forever. Um, we knew it cured cancer, like we very rapidly discovered that it cured cancer. Um, and so people just started putting it in everything. Um, <laughs> and for two reasons. One, if you were, for example, with the Radium Girls, the very famous case of the Radium Girls, um, they were painting watch faces so that you could read what your watches at night. Mm-hmm. Um, but also people were putting it in their water. Um, there was irradiated butter on the market, irradiated face and body powders on the market, um, many of which did not actually contain radium. It wasn't against the law to just lie. So a lot of companies... <laughs> um, the FDA but, wasn't uh, really just, you know. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> there, there was no regulation on that. Yeah, but, so people did believe that it was like this magical cure-all and then... Um, it wasn't, uh, and people started dying. And that, that's really one of the really sad things about radium. Yeah. We were really excited, and then it was really bad very rapidly. Yeah, be careful with the radium. Don't put it in your powder. Don't put it in anything. That is awesome. And, I mean, these are the kind of stories that I feel like people miss. And if you go through the pharmacy on your own, which I actually did, and I read, like, everything, but I missed that. And I think there's so many things that it helps to have the docent with you and answering those questions and telling you the stories, the really interesting nuggets you may not actually realize are as interesting until you have somebody tell you about it. Now, these are Victorian era. I mean, we're, we're talking strange medical practices, <laughs> things that hardly qualify as medicine are going on. I mean, not just what they were using as medication, but treatments for things. So what kinds of things were were being used and done there? 
Yeah, so the Victorian period, um, and when it, the, that is typically the period um, from the early to the late 1800s. Queen Victoria was blessed with a long and luxurious life. So the Victorian period sort of encapsulates all of the 1800s. Mm -hmm. um, we do have a few pieces, like I mentioned, from the like 1920s, um, like the radium powder. But mm -hmm. most of our stuff is focused on the Victorian period. Um, and this was a period of a lot of change. Um, it was the Industrial Revolution. It was, um, it was a, a lot of different things were going on, especially in science. Um, at the very end of the Victorian period, you would have the rise of germ theory as opposed to the reigning theory for a really long time, which was miasmic mm -hmm. theory. Um, yeah. And so you had these a lot of like very different ideas going around within the scientific community about like what medicine was and what science was and how the body functioned because we didn't really know. Um, and so you were operating on the idea of humors uh, still in this period, um, especially the idea of balancing your humors, um, the idea, we actually still use some of the terms if you call someone sanguine, um, mm -hmm. it has a specific meaning, like a sort of happiness, sort of joyfulness, um, but song is the, the French word for blood, it, it comes from having too much blood, it makes you sort of hot-headed, it makes you joyful, it makes you this bubbly um, sort of person having uh, like too little blood, the opposite, you could have too much bile, uh, bilious is another one of my favorite mm -hmm. adjectives. Um, all yeah. the words that That's a fun word. <laughs> um, and, and you would have things like bloodletting, um, leeches, um, for example, Washington, um, very, uh, he would die um, because he developed a cold. Um, and then his doctors decided to bloodlet him with a slicer, <laughs> which was like, uh, like six razor blades in a little mechanism that had a punch that it would like the razors would pop out and pop back in and it was like oh, six razors in a little line and they would just sort of like cut his wrists or, or cut parts of vicious yeah <laughs> and then they would bleed him uh they, they ended up bleeding him i believe upwards of six times in one night um to the point that he just sort of died of blood loss um so people were just sort of trying lots of different things we didn't have like a ton of ideas um we knew some things worked and some things didn't um, and, but we kept trying them because that's what science has always been about is just you try and try and try, um, and you fail sometimes, but we wouldn't mm -hmm. be where we are today. If not for that. Mm -hmm. Now you guys have got lots of instruments yes. that were used. <laughs> I mean, speaking of the, the six blade razor bloodletting thing, you've got some pretty interesting contraptions, yeah. things that maybe look more like they should belong in a hardware store than a doctor's office. What are some of the things that, that you think are kind of the, the really fun ones that are the really weird ones? Um, my favorite by far is um, our trepanning uh, mechanism. We have a trepanner. Um, trepanning is one of the oldest medical practices um, in the universe, actually, or in, in the world. Um, it, we have evidence that trepanning has been occurring since ancient Rome um, during battles. Uh, and what trepanning is, is the, it is an idea of removing pressure from the brain. Um, if you have like a buildup of blood or a buildup of fluid in your brain, they need a way to remove that. Um, and what better way than just to sort of drill a hole in your head? Um, and so uh, we have a trepanning mechanism, which is like just a little, uh, sort of looks like a, um, like a cookie cutter almost um, <laughs> on like on the end of like a dial <laughs> system. And you, the idea is that if you had um, a like fluid build up in your brain, um, they would just put it on your head and sort of drill a hole in your head, um, oh <laughs> which isn't completely wrong. If you have fluid build up in your brain, a modern doctor will still try and remove the fluid. The problem was that they weren't prescribing to germ theory. So they were introducing a lot of um, like infections into mm -hmm. those 
wounds that were very close to the blood brain barrier, obviously, um, <laughs> which was very deadly. Um, but trepanning is really interesting um, and obviously goes back a very long time. So I'm very, very, very blessed to have some cool trepanning needles. Um, one of my favorite upstairs exhibits, which some people just completely miss the upstairs. Which is oh, beautiful. I love the upstairs. Um, we have um, a, a very beautiful exhibit of um, like reconstruction, early plastic surgery. We have like a, a half glass eye. Um, and some pictures of early reconstruction surgery um, where they were just using like whatever they could to sort of emulate a face almost um, to like give people back the idea of a nose. But it, they, they often look very odd to modern eyes because they're just like glass or plastic or just sort of whatever they can try to make it look sort of correct. Um, and they're also often attached via just like ropes or like, uh, <laughs> like, like a mask. <laughs> Yeah, like, I love the glasses, which are a freak eye in and hold on to glasses. <laughs> <laughs> there are some really interesting bottles of medication. And we would either look at them today as things you would never give somebody that, you know, we're looking at, you know, things like opium and all of those things that we know are highly addictive. And I know we still have, you know, opium based things today, but they were giving you know, laudanum out like it was candy. I mean, that's how you treat a headache. Here you go, take some opium. And a lot of the medications were very heavily alcohol-based, right? I mean, basically you're either getting high or drunk and then you feel better. So it, it all works. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of your favorites that you've seen in there? Um, we have a lot of very small medicine bottles. It's always very fun to read the labels. Um, a lot of medicines in this period were just heavily alcohol-based. Um, just because if you were making what they call patent medicines, um, which is what we have if you go in the museum, we have a very large wall of just patent medicines, which are medicines um, that had like uh, recipes that the owner wanted to keep a secret, um, for lack of a better word. They, they, they wanted a proprietary um, medicine. You didn't have to disclose that, obviously. Um, and so a lot of it, um, a lot of the basis of those medicines was just alcohol. Um, have a cough. Here's like, it's like 98%. It's like Everclear. Drink it. You'll feel okay. better, certainly. Um, yes, you will. <laughs> um, and then you have like the, the opiums and laudanums, um, which, you know, were by and large women's drugs. Um, they were, like men did take them, but by and large, um, the like a good percentage of women were addicted to, to laudanum in this period. A good Why do you think that is? Um, Part of it was the the rise, well, not the rise, but the the continued presence of hysteria um, within the uh, community, within the medical community. Um, hysteria was this sort of catch-all disease. It actually comes from the Greek word um, for the womb, uh, and it's also sort of sometimes referred to as wandering womb syndrome, um, where you have this idea that dates back to the Roman period of instead of like the womb being an organ, there was this idea that the the womb was an animal inside of an animal. Um, and so during a woman's menses or during, even just during the regular month, um, the womb would detach from like where it's meant to live and like crawl around your body and cause all sorts of things. Um, they, and the wow. problem with hysteria is that it could be anything. Um, there's reports of men, if you didn't like your wife for whatever reason, if you didn't like your daughter, you could say, well, she's too emotional. She's not emotional enough. She's crying too much. She's not crying enough. She's like, she's uh, not doing the housework that she should be doing. She's doing this, oh she's, doing that, she's doing this. And so in order to like, the, the cure all for that was either to put them in an asylum or 
to give them laudanum, give them something to just sort of calm them down. If they were crying too much, <laughs> give them laudanum, they'll be fine. Um, it'll shut them up. Uh, and, and similarly for children, if you were a working woman in this period, which there were a lot of working women, um, you didn't have access to like childcare for the most part. Um, so there was a lot of medicines that marked themselves as like a mother's cure. Um, there was just like heroin and opium and alcohol. And it was like, wow. give a teaspoon to your baby. They'll sleep eight hours straight. And then you can come home and you, they'll be fine. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. But, you know, I guess if they didn't, they didn't know any better. I mean, they were doing what they could with what they had, I guess, and the knowledge that they had. And to them, they were taking care of a problem. <laughs> so it seems really weird to us because, you know, medical science has come a long way. But, you know, and the same thing with some of the instruments we look at them and go, there's no way I would let that anywhere near my body. <laughs> and yet that was, it was just common medical practice at the time. Now I have a picture here. Tell me what we're looking at here. All these little tiny bottles and all of these things back here. What are those? Yeah. So this is our, um, this is actually a subsection um, within the museum that is our pharmacological display. Um, it's supposed to emulate what a pharmacist counter might look like in the periods so you have um, mortars and pestles, you have um, met, uh, pill rollers um, near the front, um, and you just have like a variety of medical bottles. Um, a lot of our museum is just like as many real medicines as we can have from the period. Um, the majority of our collections at the museum um, come from donations from medical schools and pharmacies um, within New Orleans and some outside of New Orleans. Um, and so we get a lot, we just have a lot of these like medicines that are labeled with what they are. Um, and we do strive to like have, it's all actual stuff, unless it's actively dangerous for us to wow. have it. Um, it's all the real thing. Like if you, if you look on our counters and you see a bottle labeled sulfur, that's sulfur. Um, we have carboxylic acid, like we have like all those bottles of like real stuff. And unless it's dangerous for us to have it or illegal for us to have it, um, we do still have it in the museum. That's incredible that so much of it is there. So you're you're collecting all of this and all of these things are coming to you and you just get to find fun places to put them and how to put them on display. Have you found a place for everything or do you have things that you kind of rotate out? There's um, there's definitely some stuff that's just living in the entresol, um, which is where we sort of store our, our archives. Um, but uh, we do have some rotating exhibits right now on the second floor. We're working through um, rotating a local pharmacy pharmacist exhibition um, where like we'll highlight uh, historical pharmacists from New Orleans um, and it's upstairs and that's that is a roving exhibition and those tend to come from partnerships um, between the museum and uh, the family of a, a pharmacist or, or whomever um, well but we also do like our own research to figure out like the best people to highlight um, but the majority of our collections are permanent um, they do change from time to time like we get something really interesting we're like we have to find space for this um, but uh, for the most part, a lot, most of our collection is permanent. Um, and we just have a lot of other stuff, uh, unfortunately, that the most people just don't get to see. Um, but it's really beautiful. <laughs> awesome. Now, I want to talk about some maybe legends and people that are associated with this. Maybe some of the things that were done with cadavers and you know, all of this stuff. I want to talk about all of this. So we are going to pause here. 
And we're going to do a part two with Cameron about the pharmacy museum because there is so much stuff to explore and we want to make sure that we have plenty of time to talk about that. So hold tight, Cameron, and we're going to work on our second part of this. So we hope that you guys tune in for part two of the pharmacy museum. Dead Folks Tales is a copywritten podcast of authors on the air, Global Radio Network. Special thanks to producer Roman Surratton and executive producer Pam Stack. Join us next week for another episode of Dead Folks Tales. <laughs> <laughs>